Hey guys, welcome to the 32nd episode of True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So today we have an insane episode for you. And I'm actually shocked that I haven't heard more about this case. When I first read about it, I couldn't believe that I hadn't heard a podcast about it or even seen a TV show about it. And we're always on TV watching true crime specials, so I'm surprised we haven't come across this one. It's very rare Kay makes me search like in the podcast app for a specific case or something like that and nothing comes up. So I thought it was really bizarre. <laughs> yeah, I think that in watching Investigation Discovery and perusing Reddit and all that stuff, we think we've kind of heard about everything. But this case definitely has eluded us and we're really interested and excited to bring it to you guys. It really has everything you could think of. But with that being said, this one definitely threw me through a loop and down a whole bunch of rabbit holes and a whole lot of other cases. One of them actually we're planning to do for our Patreon supporters. So even just in researching this case, I found basically four potential episodes. That's how crazy it is. It's pretty exciting. That is exciting. Absolutely. And we're excited to bring that to our Patreon supporters, which probably is going to be next weekend that we're going to release that episode in between our regularly scheduled episodes. This case today, though, is rough. And I've always been on the fence with disclaimers during true crime podcasts and details to include. And we kind of talked about this with the chicken coop murder case. I... I never don't want to include details. I think it's something that is disrespectful, you know, to not tell someone's whole story when their voice has kind of been prematurely and violently taken from them. But some true crime junkies don't like hearing uh, disclaimers. They find it annoying and patronizing. But if we don't give them, people also get upset. So we're on the fence with this one. And I'm one of those people who, when they hear a crime or hear someone say, this is a bad one, I think that it can't bother me, that like I've literally heard everything. But this one is a whole nother level of disturbing. So I'm sorry for those of you that got this, your champions, but for those of you that like being spared, we'll definitely tell you when the bad stuff starts coming up, we promise. And this isn't me just kind of gassing up this episode. It's a really disturbing crime. So we just do want to warn you about that beforehand, especially uh, crime against children, but not in the way that we, our past episodes have been, crimes against children. Oh yeah, it's completely different. This one's very unique. So um, with that being said, let's get into the episode. Deep in the heartlands of the United States, just on the outskirts of the Bible Belt, lies Jefferson County, Illinois. And by 1987, the county was in crisis mode. For the past two years, despite having a small rural population, there have been 15 murders, three of them remaining unsolved. The people of the county think that they have seen and heard it all. Everyone is on high alert, and not a soul can be seen on the streets after dark. But the cautiousness does not prevent more murders from taking place. Because on November 18, 1987, a family is brutally and senselessly slaughtered. So just what exactly is going on in Jefferson County? Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil. 
in some form or another. Are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. So let's get into a little bit more detail about the situation in Jefferson County. Between 1985 and 1987, like we said, there was 15 murders in Jefferson and the neighboring county of Franklin. But most of the murders are going to take place within Jefferson County. To start off the years of murderous rage were the homicides of Thomas Odell. During an LSD-fueled rage, Odell stabbed his father to death and waited for his mother to come home. When she did, he repeatedly stabbed her in the neck until she stopped making noises, he says later. Next, he waited for his three siblings, Scott, Sean, and Robin, to come home. One by one, they came home, and one by one, he killed them, strangling one and stabbing the others. After this, a series of other brutal murders are going to take place, many of them also involving sexual assaults. The county was on high alert. This was something that was new for the people of Southern Illinois. These were things that only took place in or around metropolitan areas, like St. Louis or Chicago, but not there. Southern Illinois is known as Little Egypt because of its surrounding rivers and their tributaries that basically sandwich miles and miles of farmland. So it's very religious, very rural, and it's really small, tight-knit communities. Right, so everybody knows each other. Right. You know? Yeah. The, the kind of community where you think this could never happen here. Right, which is like kind of where I grew up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, not where you grew up. You grew up in Queens, but then you moved upstate New York. True. But I spent the large time of You have to clarify, because uh, people right. are like, what's going on with John? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so half was spent in the city, half was spent on, like, farmland, pretty much. <laughs> and it's just, when everyone knows everyone, you don't ever want to admit that something like that could take place there, because that means one of your own is doing something like this. Oh, yeah. But with the rural population comes a small population for a large amount of land. And when you do the ratio of murder to population... This was an astronomical amount of murders to take place in two years. Oh, definitely. 15, that's a lot. Yeah. So this oddity is going to allow a lot of rumors to start spreading. And these are rumors of satanic cults in the area. Oh, man. Yes. Um, but this is very common in the 1980s and 90s. As we saw a phenomenon known really as the satanic panic, which has always been something that has completely fascinated me. It's kind of like a modern-day witch hunt that took place. And I don't want to go too deeply into detail regarding this because I do want to do an in-depth analysis of the panic and the cases that came out of it because there's a few that come out of this. Oh, yeah. Some high-profile ones, too. Yeah. So let's just say that the seeds were planted in religious communities, that there was a satanic cult carrying out ritualistic killings across the country and quite possibly around the world. And after the rape and murder of a 10-year-old girl in 1987, those rumors are only going to intensify. So they think that this satanic panic that the whole country is talking about has now spread to southern Illinois. And their little were, community. <laughs> right. And the fact that they're very religious is only going to um, heighten their sense of fear about these satanic cults coming to Right, them. of course. But it was actually that murder of the 10-year-old girl... That was the last straw for 29-year-old Keith Dardine, 
Dardine had newly moved to the area with his pregnant wife, Elaine, and their three-year-old son, Peter. Dardine recently moved his family to the area from about an hour and 20 minutes ride east because the couple found good jobs. Keith as an operator at a water treatment plant and Elaine at an office supply store. However, these recent murders had the family very uneasy. And with his wife pregnant, Keith did not want to raise a family in that environment. He felt like his family was especially vulnerable because to save money, the couple was living in a mobile home off of a main road on a land that was rented from a local farmer in the town of Ina. Well, right off the bat, yeah. that that worries me. One, because you're you're pretty much isolating yourself without even realizing it because well you're you're on you're in a trailer park on on land no they're not in a trailer no, no, park no I'm, I'm sorry not a trailer park let me rephrase i meant a trailer that was on a farmer's a land, farmer's like, land like the outskirts of the farmer's land their mobile home was right on like a main busy road so they're not isolated but they're very vulnerable they say that most break-ins and like robberies occur on homes that are off of major highways or railroads or easy access. Do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. I'm just saying as far as you you have no neighbors is what I'm saying. Right. No, they definitely don't have any yeah, neighbors. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. You're, like, you're isolating yourself. You have no neighbors. You know, you're on a main road. So it's like a, it, it is a form of isolation when you have no one, no neighbors within earshot. No, that's very true. You know? And you're thinking like Keith because... He is going to make the decision to put his mobile home up for sale and make the move back to his hometown of Mount Carmel. The decision to move again was not made lightly. Keith and Elaine loved the area and the church group that they were now a part of. They were asked to join the church music ensemble and Keith was at vocals and Elaine was on the piano. Let me ask you a question. So they really liked that. I think that we should do that. No, John, we have no musical talent whatsoever. They really seemed to be enjoying themselves, but in a confession to his mother, he told her that he and Elaine came up with names for the baby. Ian if he was going to be a boy, and Casey if she was going to be a girl. And after he heard about what happened to that 10-year-old girl, he was seeing how violent the area had become, and he didn't want to see something like that happen to his Casey or Ian. I think that's a responsible move. It is a responsible move. I mean... I'm sure all the parents in the communities were scared. Right, especially like, you know, you have one kid on the way. It's a responsible father. I think so. So Keith's mother is also going to state that this is when Keith becomes very protective of his young family. There's one incident where a woman comes and knocks on the door asking to use their phone and Keith wouldn't let her in. Which, thank you. Someone's finally watching scary movies and understands that you never let somebody in. That's true. Especially it, when nice. they say, my car broke down. Right. I need to use and your phone. And that's exactly what you said. So it's like, okay, nice. Some people have common sense. I know it's nice to be nice to strangers, but I also want to live. That's true. So I'm glad that Keith is, is he probably watches scary movies. So Maybe. good job, Keith. But as we stated before, all this cautiousness is going to go out the window on a cold night in November. And on the morning of November 18th, 1987, Keith does not report for work at the water treatment plant. 
This is something that was very unusual, as Keith was a reliable worker and would never just not show up for work. In the past, if he had to miss work because he was sick or his son was sick, he would call his supervisor the night before. This is why Keith's supervisor made the choice to call his home and check on him. However, the phone just continued to ring with no answer. After trying every hour for five hours, he decided that he should call Keith's emergency contact, his parents. And although Keith's parents were divorced, they both still lived in his hometown, which was an hour and 20 minutes away. Dardeen had not heard from his son and did admit that this was strange that he didn't show up to work. Also strange that he hadn't heard from him. He told the man that he would reach out to the sheriff's department so they could go out and do a wellness check on the family. After Don Dardine got off the phone with the sheriff's department, he got into his car and headed out to his son's mobile home in Ina. He agreed to meet the sheriff's deputy there, as he had the keys to the home so that he could enter the property. As earlier, an officer tried to knock and received no response and couldn't look into the windows. As he arrived, he gave the keys to the Jefferson County Sheriff deputies. And what those men would enter into the home and see would haunt them for the rest of their lives. So this is where the, the trigger warning is going to start. Because what they find in there is like a nightmare. So at first when they entered the property, they did not notice anything being out of place. As they walked further into the mobile home, there were pools of blood on the floor. Something was not right. As the deputies reached the bed, they saw Elaine Dardine and they immediately called for backup. She appeared to be unconscious, beaten severely, and gagged. Her pulse was checked in her neck and it was apparent that she was dead. But the scene still looked wrong. There was blood all over the blanket that appeared to be tucked around Elaine, but it seemed that there was more than just Elaine's body under the blankets. The deputy pulled the cover down and almost fell to his knees. The people of Little Egypt hadn't seen anything like what was underneath those covers, not even in the past two years. It appeared that Elaine was bound and gagged by what looked like to be duct tape, but it was covered in blood and hard to tell. Her body was a beaten, bloody mess. Lying next to her was her three-year-old son, also beaten almost to the point of disfigurement. But it wasn't that that made the deputy double over. It was the newborn baby lying on the other side of Elaine. It was a baby girl. She had met the same fate as her mother and brother. Lying next to the bed and the three members of the Dardine family was a bloodied baseball bat. When Don Dardine walked in on the scene, the only thing that law enforcement could get from him was that that bat was the one that Keith had bought for his son on his birthday. That crazy? That's crazy. He I was, mean, he was they were he was beaten with his own baseball bat, the 3-year-old boy. That's so <laughs> It's I don't disturbing. Even have words. I don't even it's, have words for it. I know you have a lot of questions. We're going to answer them, we promise. So the crime scene analysts are going to arrive, and they begin to process the scene and try to make sense of a crime 
that was inconceivable. The order of the deaths are unclear, but what was determined was that sometime during the beating, Elaine was beaten so badly and under such severe stress that she went into premature labor and gave birth to a baby girl. And she herself had only just reached her eight months of pregnancy. It's unknown whether she was bound during the birth because her body was found bound and gagged, but we don't know if this was the case while she was giving birth. At some point, the aggression of the killer or killers is going to turn to the children, and all three members were beaten to death. Casey, only moments after she entered this world, and Peter with his own baseball bat. The actual crime scene was unusual as well and only made things more complicated for investigators. First, it appears that the person or persons responsible for the murders cleaned up after the crime took place, cleaning blood spatter and spots from the wall and some from the floor. So this led investigators to think that they were not in a rush or felt confident in their ability to remain in the house without being caught. That sounds a lot like Hinter Kafak. It does. It actually reminds me of that, like, 100%. The fact that they were able to stay in there, do what they needed to do, and then they, they booked it out of there. Right, felt afterwards. very comfortable. Yeah. The bodies were also posed, and this could explain a lot about the killer. The children were laid down on either side of their mother, in bed, and they were all covered with the same blanket. There were no signs of a break-in, so the person that killed the family was let in, and the back door was left open. Presumably, that was the door the killers, or kill, killer or killers left from. This is also not a robbery. All of the valuables were still in the house, and there was a brand new VCR player. Yes, VCR player, it's 1987. That was extremely valuable because they had just come out uh, beneath their television set which was also a pretty new television set. There was also no signs of sexual assault on any of the victims, thank God. So it was not sexually motivated, not a break-in, not a robbery. So it adds complication. It just seems like pure rage. And it does kind of describe what kind of killer we're dealing with, I feel like, because I feel like they're putting the sheet over the victims in my opinion, is like a sign of like remorse for doing it. Maybe, maybe. I mean, I, I mean, it's too early to say, but I mean, I'm just. It kind of just feels that way because you wouldn't put the kids next to her and then the sheet and everything if you didn't feel bad about doing it after the fact. Right. It could be a remorse thing. Could also be a mocking thing, though. Could be. We don't know. Like if it's you never know the motivation for a crime, but if it's someone who's angry at Elaine in some type of way, here you spend eternity with your children. That's what you want. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I can so see. So it, yeah. it depends. I mean, I don't feel like they definitely do not have enough information yet. And so much more facts are going to come out and more things are going to be discovered that make any theory that you're going to have right away just completely blown away. Okay. Investigators at the point of discovery were, however, more concerned with Keith. At first glance, it appeared that he was the one responsible for the murders of his family. The weapon came from within the house. So always very interesting. Very. Right? Like, it's, it's bizarre that someone's going to want to kill you, come in, and then not have a murder weapon. Right? We saw that with the Routier case. Right. It's kind of strange, and it always brings up red flags. 
So the fact that the murder weapon, the baseball bat, came from the mobile home, kind of strange. It also makes me think that this wasn't something that was premeditated. Like, right. You know what I mean? Like, this was, like, done on the fly, out of nowhere, in a quick second, and the person or people grabbed the first thing that they could find that can kill somebody. Right. That's a good point. So the weapon came from the house. Keith and his car are both missing from the property. There was also no sign of a break-in or a robbery. And law enforcement was now on the hunt for Keith Dardine. But could Keith have done this? A church-going family man be responsible for such a heinous crime? I don't sound, think so. Sound like BTK a little bit? A little bit. A little bit. A lot of it. He was a family man. He had an entire family. He had this secret life. He was very involved in the church and in the community, albeit in very strange ways. I mean, obviously, BTK hadn't been caught yet, and they don't know this about him. But And in the late 80s, they didn't. It wasn't really thought this way that, like, this family man could be a killer. I mean, now that's our mindset in retrospect. But back then they were like, this is a church-going guy. Right. Well, also... Now we're, like, completely jaded. Well, true. But, but back then it was, it's definitely like a form of camouflage, you know, to have a family, to be part of a community. Right. You know, to be uh, a supporting, loving father or husband. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's all camouflage for, you know someone that wants to commit an act (laughs) right because the officers of jefferson county may have said two years ago at this point no there's no way that he could have done this but after seeing 15 crimes go down 15 murders you kind of become jaded like we are today and say like really anyone could be responsible for anything after everything we've seen so far well everyone's guard is up for sure and it's interesting because 15 murders took place and three of them are still unsolved. So they were playing around with the idea of there being a serial killer in the area. So a team of armed deputies were dispatched to the home of Dardine's mother in Mount Carmel, as they thought that maybe he was held up there. However, he was not, but a be on the lookout was placed for Keith and his missing vehicle. Some investigators speculated that possibly Keith was responsible for those three unsolved murders in the area because they start putting stuff together. So since the Dardines had moved to the area, that's when those three unsolved murders took place. Right. So the more that they have, the more they start to put things together, the more questions they have than answers, really. Right. They're like, is this when he snapped? I mean, obviously they don't have... The knowledge we have today about about serial killers, 100%. But in looking at the work the FBI was doing with this analysis of serial killers, sometimes this does take place where a serial killer will kill their family as that is the trigger for them. So like uh, a good example would be like Edmund Kemper, where his anger was at his mother for the way that she treated him. So he would take out his aggressions on the co-eds and he became the co-ed killer and he would kill young girls because of his anger towards his mother. But that anger boiled up and he eventually does kill his mother. Okay. So there's thinking, okay, is this what happened here? Keith Dardine is angry with his family. So he's been committing these murders that boiled up and he finally blew up at his family. I understand. So they're I trying the to look at things that way. Yeah. So it's not 
impossible. There has been precedence where serial killers will turn on their own because that's their trigger for them emotionally. You know what I mean? So we're going to take a quick break from our sponsor right now. We're just going to let it soak in. Is Keith the serial killer in Jefferson County? I don't know. I don't know. So investigators are going to have a lot of questions regarding whether or not they had a serial killer at large in Keith Dardine. But those questions would be answered by a phone call that they would receive early the next morning. A group of hunters had found a body in a wheat field about a mile from the Dardine family mobile home. This body was found just south of the Jefferson County line near Rend Lake College. It was the body of Keith Thardine. He had been shot three times, had head trauma, and his penis had been severed. Aw, oh, come on. I know. I know. It's always a rough one. Investigators then got a call from the Benton Police Department. Dardine's car was found parked outside of the town's police station. And that was 11 miles away from the mobile home of the Dardines. Oh, so the victim's car was left at the police station. Yes, 11 miles away. So he's a mile away from the mobile home and the car is 11 miles away. So it seems like the killer like dropped the body and left. That killer has a lot of balls in plain English. Yeah, it's, it's very busy. Yeah. I mean, to leave a crime scene car... Twice. <laughs> At, in front of a police station, I take it as a taunt. Oh, yeah. Like, you're not going to catch mm-hmm. me. Check this out, you know? Right, because the inside of the car actually has blood spatter all over it. From oh, my the shots, Because that's where he was shot in the car. So now with the discovery of Keith's body... And the addition of a second crime scene, the investigation is going to become even more complicated. Through Keith's autopsy, it was determined that he had died within an hour of his family. Another thing that made everything more complicated is the fact that two different counties completed the autopsy, as Keith was found in a neighboring county. In regards to Keith, one coroner is going to state that he died from a head injury and then was shot. And the other believed that he was shot and then got the head injury once he was being dragged out of the car. However, based on where the wounds were on Keith's head and the blood spatter found in the vehicle, it was determined that he was shot first, like shot three times first. And then he sustained the head injury from being dragged outside of the car. So the second coroner was right. The the crime scene is going to match that those findings. And this is going to add many questions. So was Keith killed first? Was there more than one killer? It seemed the more they investigated, the more questions law enforcement had. Because these are two different, two completely different methods of killing somebody. Which is not, usually it's not the case, right? I mean, if, no. they, if they stick to one MO, that's normally how it right. is, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's why it's, it's an MO. Right. But, you know, but I'm saying, but typically right. it's usually just one way and that's it. Yeah, I mean, some. I mean, there are a, a lot of examples of people who are going to kill in different ways, but the same kind of concept around the killing is similar. Whereas Keith's seems to be more of an organized killing until he dies, and then the dis, the the sexual mutilation of Keith is going to seem a little rageful to me. But then there's extreme rage shown at the mobile home. Right. It's it's weird. It could be the same person but it also could not be. 
I see what you're saying. You know? Yeah. But the methods are completely different. And there's a lot that hasn't been revealed to us about the crime, the public. And not a lot of people have done cases, case studies on this. So from what I received in looking and researching on this case was that their best guess was that the murder with Keith happened first. And then if it, if it was one person, the murder with Keith happened first, then they drove back to the mobile home and committed that murder because they seemed to have a calm about them and stay and clean up. They felt like they had extra time. They wouldn't feel that way if they had to go out and kill Keith afterwards. Well, right. I mean, you go into, like, so pretty much you're going into this extreme rage, let's just say, for example, and now after this is all being committed, it's all said and done, and now that this person or people are coming off that extreme rage high. Correct. And, you know, trying to clean up and stage a crime scene, do all that other stuff. Right. That's what it seems like. You're just, like, coming down from that right. high. Unless there's two people. Right. Unless one person stayed back at the trailer and the other person went off to kill Keith but then picked up the guy on the way and he cleaned up because he was waiting. It's possible, right? So it's it's so many unknowns here. Oh, yeah. The town of Ina in the county of Jefferson was hit really hard by these crimes. Children stopped playing outside and every after-school sporting event, the children had to wait inside until their parents pulled up to pick them up in their cars just right outside the school doors. So basically everyone was on lockdown. That's pretty much how my life was all the way till sixth grade living in the city. Yeah, I'm so, we're sorry about that, John. That's okay. It's a tough life. It is. Uh, people also... Be- my dad just let me walk home. He said, just do it. Just Wow. I think I was like in kindergarten. My dad's like, you you take that trip. Well, in the city, we're not al- you, you weren't allowed. Yourself. We weren't yeah. allowed to do that. <laughs> People also began to walk around with their guns visible. So there was a lot of, like, gun presence in the town because that made people feel a little bit more comfortable. And law enforcement was pretty lax about it because they knew people that calmed people down. And there seemed to be, like, this heightened sense of of fear and wanting to protect people's families. In an effort to keep the public from panicking, law enforcement kept most of the information involving the crimes to themselves as they thought the public knowing the information would lead to more chaos. Because let's get real, this is an insane crime. Oh, yeah. However, this seemed to have an adverse effect on the community, as the rumor mill went wild. It is the details of the crime which will further entrench these two years of Jefferson County mayhem deep into the satanic panic that was sweeping the country. So the fact that 15 murders are going to take place, three unsolved, then this family is massacred in the most brutal way you could ever think of. The most senseless, ruthless crime to to kill an infant who was just born, right? Oh, yeah. That's evil. And that's what people were... Then when you associate that with the evil, the satanic panic was happening. There's genital mutilation... A baby is being killed. Which is typically your... Yes, that is all of the things. That was the buzzwords that were going on right. on the TV at the time. I was these, just about to say that, buzzwords. Yeah, these yeah. satanic experts, mm-hmm. right? Because how are you an expert on Satanism? Like, True. crazy. I also I also have a problem with the fact that the police, the sheriff, deputies, and everything, they really kept the information like to themselves, and they didn't tell the public. And I have a problem because what that does is... 
it puts people on such edge that people are going to go out of their way to take law into their own hands, start to self-patrol, and we see that start with everyone having guns. I think that the fact that you're putting this idea of the possibility of a satanic cult existing in their small community is scary to them because they're hearing about these cases on TV that that truly terrify them. Now, this is just a quick aside because I really want to do an in-depth episode like we said before, but cases like, like the McMartin Preschool case, and for those of you that don't know what this is, in the 80s, the, there was an idea that there was a satanic ritual abuse cult that was acting within the United States, right? Quite possibly the world. We said this before, that they were abusing the children of this preschool. And this is one of the most infamous cases in American history and one of the most expensive because the elaborate things that kids were saying was happening, they had to investigate all of them. And I want to do a whole episode on it because it's so unbelievable. And there's so many great books about it. So I'm slowly working my way through them and then the episode's going to come out. But all of this whole satanic panic thing is going to kind of start when a book is going to come out called Michelle Remembers in 1980, where a Canadian psychiatrist is going to help a girl whose name is Michelle Smith recover memories like through hypnotherapy of a satanic abuse that happened throughout her life. That's interesting. Yeah. However, the details could never be substantiated. And they were so outlandish that it was hard to gain traction. But but because of the sensationalism of it all, it really caught on. So it was Michelle Remembers, the McMartin Preschool case. This is going to take place, the Jefferson County murders. I mean, 50, so now we're at 19 murders in Jefferson County in two years. And then you're going to see the case of the Memphis Three. Like, these are all cases that are deeply entrenched within the satanic panic event that took place. So this is just the fact that the crime of the Dardines took place is going to cement Jefferson County in the satanic panic movement, I guess you can, whatever you want to call it's it. It's so crazy Phenomena. how all those events that took place and that led to this, you right. know, it's crazy how just they, just the coincidence of it all, right? Right. Just all of them from start to, you know, well, finish, I guess. Definitely crazy. It's it's an insanity that, that people truly believe that people were hurting people and children and they were doing it in the name of Satan and there were there was like rituals involving babies. So the fact that that happened with Elaine is going to just do it. You know what I mean? Right. And also holding back the information led people to crazy speculations as well. Right. It was basically the perfect storm. Right. So the circumstances in which Elaine gave birth, because I think it is something that we should talk about, um, they were never fully revealed to the public. Just that the baby was born and was beaten to death. However, because the details were not released... This left a lot of room for speculation. In the research I did on the case, and trust me, I am not a doctor, but the physical and mental stress that a physical attack can have on the body, especially the beating that Elaine took, could cause premature labor, especially at eight months pregnant. This means that because there was no incision on her stomach, that Elaine went through a physical labor before her death. This has to be the case because the only other alternative 
would be something known as coffin birth. And this is when a pregnant woman passes away, and the fetus has also passed away. And through the various stages of decomposition, gases build up in her body. And it's the release of those gases that cause the fetus to be expelled from her body. And that's a coffin birth. So, like, the baby is born, but it's the gases that kind of expel the baby. Do you right. know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so gross. This was horrific research that I was doing. Um, I feel like the United States government is watching me at all times since this podcast has begun. (laughs) (laughs) So this process, though, takes days. And based on what we know from the entire family dying within hours of each other, and when the bodies were found, decomposition hadn't even begun yet. So it couldn't have been coffin birth. And Elaine didn't have an incision on her stomach. It was just, she was just beaten. Right. So we know that she gave a natural birth. But the fact that the public did not know this information led them to believe, well, to think and rumors to start, that Elaine had not given a natural birth, but rather the baby was ripped from her stomach in a satanic ritual. See, so that's where the police not giving information hurt them. But then the police also want to keep stuff close to their chest because if someone, they do find someone who's responsible, some of this information needs to be kept secret. Right. I can understand it's both hard, sides, but it's give yeah. and take. Mm-hmm. And only intensifying those rumors was the fact that Keith's penis was cut off. That's so disturbing. Yeah. And it terrifies me right now. I know. But, well, I mean, if, I don't know if this makes you feel better, but it was post-mortem. Uh Still bad. Still terrible. Yeah. Still bad. And, of course, genital mutilation was supposedly a characteristic of these rituals as well. Yeah. So, and those that did not believe that there was any Satanism going on did believe that this had to be the work of one serial killer. So, like, that's not good either. You've got a whole town believing there's either a satanic cult running around trying to kill people, cutting babies out of women's stomachs, and mutilating people's genitals, and then the other half believes there's a serial killer. So, like, not good. Well, Both scenarios pretty bad. Honestly, no matter, yeah, no matter what side you think it is, you're pretty much screwed. Right. This also happens time and time again where a community doesn't want to believe that one of them could have committed a crime so heinous. So it has to be an outsider, right? But I will say in this case that that theory does hold some water because there was a freight train and public transit always in and out of the town. And don't forget, the Dardines do live on a busy street. Due to the nature of the crime and the current climate of the area, this case is going to receive the full attention of law enforcement. 30 detectives worked full-time from local agencies and the Illinois State Police. However, even though they interviewed over 100 people, the investigation was going nowhere. The closest they came to a suspect was a co-worker of Keith's who had a disagreement with him regarding overtime, but he was quickly cleared. The biggest problem the detectives had was that they couldn't even establish a motive. Nothing was missing from the house, no signs of a break-in. In fact, the killers or killer also felt comfortable enough to stay. But then sometimes they were showing they might have been showing signs of remorse by posing the bodies. But then they showed extreme rage, 
Like, there was no consistency with this crime whatsoever. So, they searched the mobile home in hopes that they're going to find something that's going to lead to a motive. At this point, they're desperate for a motive. Right. And they do find two things inside the mobile home that's going to make them think there's motives. First is a small baggie of marijuana. But law enforcement knows through the autopsy, and this is like hair sample testing, Keith and Elaine had no drugs in their system. So it wasn't theirs. Police believe that this was most likely left by the killer or killers. You would think, though, that if you, I guess, if you were killed, you wouldn't leave anything behind. I don't know. He was having a little bit of a crazy time. I guess. Might have dropped something. But I'm just saying, if you think about it, though, right? If you were cleaning up an apartment, staging it, trying to clean blood, you leave your weed. It was still really messy. Right? I mean, right, when right. when I say clean up, I don't mean he made it spick and span. No, I understand. <laughs> it was just a little bit cleaned up. You can't... Someone gave birth. Okay? That's a lot of blood. Yeah. You can't... Oh, yeah. You can't clean that. Next was a pile of papers full of sports scores. So they thought, okay, is it a gambling debt? Hmm. Could Keith have gambled away this money? He owed someone something, and they were getting back at him because he owes money. Right? Yeah. But when they talk to Keith's family, they're like, there's no way this took place. Keith just loved, you know, like keeping score at baseball games and football games. Like, you know, like keeping the books. Like, you know how people do that? Yeah, yeah. You know, like the guys that sit at Yankee Stadium and like fill out the whole books. Yeah, I know, so I know. so adorable. <laughs> but he wouldn't have done that because he was so tight with his money. Right? He gets in a fight with the guy over overtime. He wants that. They're living in a mobile home to save money, and his mother is even going to say that he would go out and buy cans and cans of soda and then sell them at work for 50 cents a can to save up for Peter's college. He was an entrepreneur. He was an entrepreneur, yes. I like that. He probably would have had a podcast. I like that. Yeah, I like that. Good job, Keith. But they don't think he's a gambler. And it doesn't seem... It seems like he is... The safest person in the world, which makes me even more terrified because I I value myself in being super safe. And this shows me that I am not safe and makes me even more nervous. I mean, I think you're pretty, you're cautious. Uh, no, I'm super cautious. Yeah. But look, Keith was cautious. Well, not cautious enough, I guess. Well, I guess me either. See, this is nerve wracking. No, the more I, the more I know, the more scared I am. <laughs> So now investigators were back where they began. But one thing that they were most definitely going to do was try and calm the public down, right? Serial killer, satanic panic, everyone's freaking out. So they had a police expert on cults. It's a very fancy job title, don't you Don't you think? Oh, yeah. Wonder where they found them. So this expert on cults makes a public statement. And they tell the public not to worry because... If this was the work of a satanic cult, there would have been more body mutilations and there would have been satanic symbols everywhere. And they would have taken the organs to harvest them. So don't worry, everybody. That yeah. was the that was the actual <laughs> press conference that was given. I don't think they were really thinking that through. I think that left everyone even more like, what? This is scary. Especially in a community like that, who's right. very involved in the church. Very religious, Oh, right. man. Oh, man. So eventually the FBI is going to be called in. And two profilers are going to take a look at the case. 
and they were able to offer some suggestions that the state police found useful. However, they could not deliver a profile as the crime defied all sorts of analysis. Like, it's too chaotic. Nothing makes sense. Nothing correlates. Nothing works. So they couldn't deliver a profile. And unfortunately, sometimes this is said that, like, when the FBI tries to deliver a profile, that it's better when there's more murders than just one. Because then you can build a profile over time with killers like this. Right. Because the rage is unprecedented. To be able to do that and just to have no empathy for a mother. a mo- like You watch the mother give birth. Most likely. I mean, this person had to yeah. have been there. Had yeah. to, didn't He didn't step out. No, I don't think he did. Or she didn't step out. You never no, know. No. <laughs> See, a lot of people, um, the speculation is a lot of things. So some people think that maybe Keith or Elaine were having an affair. And that maybe this was a jealous partner that could have committed these murders. Some say that it might have been Keith's mistress because... A woman would be so rageful that, like, this woman has him and has his family. And that ex- that explains the posing of the bodies. Like, here, you have your family. Like, do you know what I mean? Kind of right. in a mocking way. Right. But there was no signs of affairs. They went through phone records. They spoke to friends. They spoke to family. It, they were a very happy couple, super involved in the church. Yeah, it wouldn't have been that. They weren't. There was no evidence whatsoever of them having extramarital affairs. So it was like every every road was a dead end. Also, the fact that, like you said, it was a crime of opportunity, but then it wasn't a crime of opportunity because this person brought a gun in and killed Keith with the gun, but then used the baseball bat. Right. So now we know. What? I mean, yeah, he was shot. It's just bizarre. uh, Unless when he shot Keith, he then, like, kind of threw the gun out the window and then just went back to the house and found whatever was there. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, it's Like, just... that's the only way that that would make sense to me. Why wouldn't you just use the gun on them? Right, and just Wouldn't that quick. have been easier? I mean, I don't want him... I don't want his life to be convenient, but... No, I, I know what you're saying. I, it's hard. It's actually hard because we don't know... I mean, it's kind of... I mean, even though they've done the autopsy and everything, we don't know who was killed first. No. No. You know, we don't know if person or people killed mm-hmm. the, the rest of the family and then took him out and did it, or the opposite. It's just hard to s- figure out, like, why he would change right. his weapons. Right, and who... It was also hard to figure out who is the... Usually there's a main target, but here there's hard to see who the main target is. Because Peter, his mother, and the infant, Casey, were beaten to death, right? So that's bad. But then there's also a mutilation that took place. See, in my opinion, yeah. See, in my opinion, I think it would be Keith because you think he was. I think Keith is because right off the bat, because he got his penis cut off. You know what I mean? And then that's why some people aren't make the argument that they think it could possibly have been a woman that he was having an affair with. Right. I mean, it could be right, or just someone who's. As some people go as far to say that maybe the woman that knocked on the door like went strangers on them hmm that's possible but i, I don't think so though. i don't think so i don't either. think so though i just i Even just think though that... that would be like we always say 
Probably be an awesome movie, but most likely didn't happen. And the easiest. Yeah. I, I think that he was definitely the target, though. You think so? I do. I do. It, it, there was too much done to him. Right. For it to just be but, like but, everybody but else. But there was so much done to her. I mean, psychologically. Oh, I'm sure. There was so much but done to Elaine. he was shot Elaine. three times. He was also hit in the head or dragged or whatever right. we can assume. He got a head injury. And he got his penis cut off. Mm-hmm. And there was more an attempt to drive him. To, like, you know, hey, this is psychological. You're in the car. Your family's back. Your family's back yeah. there. Let's just say it was no, done. No, it's he was psychological, but I... Like, shudder to think that there's a possibility that Elaine gave birth and that the baby was killed in front of her. I mean... Do you know what I'm saying? I can't even, like... You can't comprehend it. Comprehend it, but I just think that he definitely still is the target. There was more done to him. Yeah. Like, even as far as physical and post-mortem. So, like, post-mortem, they were kind of covered up and cared for, With whereas remorse. post-mortem, he was... Mutilated. Right, exactly. Okay, I see there was what you're a rem- there was a remorse for the kids. Well, I mean, it doesn't make it right, but no, there was I know. remorse for the children and the mother. Whereas he got his penis cut off and left in a field. No, so do you think that that means that it was the family was chosen or that it was random? I think it was random. I, I to an extent. Okay. You know, that's what's hard too. Was it chosen or was it random? Because if there is a target, then it kind of has to be chosen. Unless this this killer killers have this aggression towards males versus females, I I don't know. Well, I mean, getting your head smashed in with a bat doesn't make it. You know, it's the same as getting shot and hit in the head. I don't know. I'm just saying. I think Keith was the target, and it probably was random. No, it takes so much. I think it takes so much more to beat someone to death with a baseball bat than to pull a trigger. I I I, I think that. In a rage, well, you don't even realize what like, you do know what you're doing, but time seems to go fast, and you don't like you know no, what I'm but saying. Like I'm, you know what I mean. Like there's a there's a connect, there's a disconnect when you use a gun to kill somebody, whereas there is a close personal connection in beating someone to death or stabbing someone. There's contact there, especially when. You're beating a mother to death so badly that she's going to go into labor or and there's someone screaming at one point or another, right? right? Because you had to have killed someone first. So a mother's either watching her son getting beaten to death or the son's watching his mother getting beat to death or the son's watching his mother give birth. Could you imagine? No, I can't. The screaming but... and that like that was more of an intense scene than just the three pops and then he was done. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. No, I do. I'm just I'm just trying to say that there was not I'm not saying more like there was more effort in it and that it or like, you know, I'm just I'm just saying it that it was just more callous, just, I guess. I, I yeah. I, don't know. I I just feel like you know, cutting the guy's penis off. I think shooting you're just him. I think you're focused on that because that's a fear. No, of no, no. Every no. man in the world <laughs> well, that, that, that might that's be true. Gonna happen. That might be true. I'm just saying though to get up close and personal and do a sexual mutilation as well. To to add insult to injury after you shot the guy three times and yeah. hit his head, I don't know. But no, no you're right. I, know I, what you're saying. I think at the end of the day, I think that <laughs> a death is a death, and they all suffered very traumatic. Tremendously, yeah. And it was insane. So after years of being unsolved, the public slowly begins to forget about the crime, like always happens, um, because you can't. I mean, as 
it's hard to say. No, you don't want to ever forget that someone suffered and that this is an unsolved crime, but the public also has to move on. The community has to move on. You can't dwell on such a horrific situation or you're just going to go backwards. But Keith's mother would refuse to let them forget that the crime was unsolved. She wanted the person who was responsible for the murder of her son and his family to be caught. Right. Who would? What family wouldn't want justice? Right. So Joanne Dardine did not want to give up hope that one day the killer of her son would be found. She kept investigating herself and kept in constant communication with the detectives regarding the case. Because you still always kind of have one detective on a case, even if it's a cold case. She even went around to the entire county and got 3,000 signatures in hopes of having the murder covered on the Oprah Winfrey show and America's Most Wanted. Initially, both shows turned her down, saying that the crime was too brutal for daytime television. Jesus. Only if they knew now. Yeah. Right? All the things we see. And all the things... Hey, we like it. We like this true crime. <laughs> it's true. It's a whole network about it. <laughs> However, America's Most Wanted eventually is going to relent, and they're going to run a segment on the crime in 1988, but no new leads were generated from the airing of that show. In fact, the next time the crimes would even be thought of again by detectives is going to be in 1999. Wow. Yeah. Big jump. When a Mexican-born serial killer is arrested. After he was arrested, police discovered that he would travel around the country on a freight train and would attack people who lived near train tracks, where he stopped. He also would beat his victims to death. However, there was no connection or time placement made between him and the Dardeen case. So that kind of went cold, too. But something else is going to happen in 1999 that will eventually have an effect on the case. On New Year's Eve, when everyone is celebrating the coming of the new millennium, two girls in Del Rio, Texas, were attacked. A man slit the throats of a 13- and 10-year-old girl and then ran away. The 10-year-old girl survived the attack and worked with law enforcement to create a sketch of the man that had attacked them. Tommy Lynn Sells was arrested because he matched the sketch to a T. Upon investigation into Sells, law enforcement determined that they could confirm that he was responsible for 22 murders. Wow. And that's, and that's just what they can physically confirm. His crimes were heinous. And unthinkable, and his M.O. was all over the place. He stabbed, shot, and strangled his victims. But some of his crimes, where he bludgeoned his victims to death, were eerily similar to what happened at the home of the Dardine family. For example, in July of 1985, while working at a carnival in Forsyth, in Forsyth Missouri, he met a 28-year-old mother. The woman invited him to come home with her. The two had sex and both fell asleep. He claimed that when he awoke, he found the woman stealing from his backpack. He then proceeded to beat her to death with her four-year-old son's baseball bat. Not wanting to leave any witnesses, he then beat her four-year-old son to death. Sound familiar? It does sound familiar. There were only two murders that Sells committed in which there was physical evidence. And as he was preparing for the trial of the second murder in 2010, realizing that he was facing the death penalty, 
he began confessing to crimes that he said he had committed while he was hopping on freight trains and working with traveling carnivals. Ugh. The idea of someone, a traveling carnival, it's just, it's so creepy. I I don't like it. There's nothing that really makes me like carnivals either. Well, I love carnivals because, like, I grew up loving a carnival, but, like, you always associate, like, those, like, traveling carnivals with, like, kind of transient people that you really don't want around your children, but you're bringing your children to them. Right, exactly. So it's kind of scary when you think about it. Okay, God, like, I'm... When we have kids, no carnivals. No carnivals, please. No carnivals. And I don't like clowns either, so let's just like not okay. do that. Oh my god, our kid's going to hate us. I know. We suck already. He stated that many of the murders that he committed were a blur to him. He committed the murders as a response to the sexual abuse that he endured as a child in the boot heel of Missouri. But he did remember one murder, and that was the one of the Dardine family. So he's confessing to all these murders, and the one he says he did was the Dardines. Right. Now, is he saying that because he wants to not be on death row and get killed or murdered or whatever? And, uh, or is it just... Or is he really confessing? <laughs> right. So there's just something before um, we kind of get into what he says took place that day. I want to tell you that Tommy Lynn Sells is kind of infamous for going on every kind of show he could. He gave interviews with whoever wanted to give him an interview and it seemed like throughout the process he became more like heartless and cold and like natural born killer like do you know what i'm saying like it was kind of like he was putting on a show for the camera so you're trying to say like he wanted people to think he was badass yes 100 percent. yes and that's why i wouldn't even i mean there's thousands of clips out there of him saying the most ridiculous things but i really don't even want to give him the time of day because i think he's gassing it for the cameras oh yeah sure he is so that's kind of why i didn't want to play a clip especially we don't have one of him speaking directly about the family but he is going to state that and then it's just shady like his whole conversation like he wants to get something out of it when it comes to speaking to law enforcement when it comes to speaking to tv crews um, giving interviews over the radio, like he's just flapping his mouth everywhere. Also, when you do those type of things, interviews, I mean, mm-hmm. you kind of get pampered. Like, yes. think about it. Like, yes. you're in jail. You don't know what a modern convenience is. So, when you have those type of interviews and stuff, right. you, you kind of get pampered a little bit, you know, within the terms of prison, but you right. do. Well, it also just breaks up the monotony of your right. day. Right. And you're not spending 24 hours in a jail cell. Right. So, like, not only the he's time. he's on death row. Exactly. Like... So, like, you know, you're getting pampered. Right. So, we're going to go through kind of what Tommy Linsells is going to say happened with the Jardines. But, well, we'll talk about it after I go Take through the Take everything with thing. a grain of salt. Yeah. Well, they don't need to. <laughs> <laughs> he stated that during the time of the Dardine family murders, he was making money by hitching rides from truck drivers, hopping on freight trains, and basically robbing anyone that he came into contact with. He said that he had met Keith at a truck stop. And that he invited him to his home for dinner. So Keith invited Tommy over for dinner. And at the time, Tommy Linsells is 22 years old in 1987. After the dinner, while outside, Keith propositions him to have sex. Which, because of his history, Tommy's history of being sexually abused, makes him fly into a rage. He holds Keith at gunpoint and forces him to drive away and shoots him three times and disposes of the body. 
Then he returns and kills Elaine, Peter, and Casey. His direct quote about it, in when he was asked about killing an infant, he said, I was just so pissed off that I took it to the maximum limit. Rage doesn't have a stop button. However, when retelling the story to the FBI, he states that he met Keith at a pool hall and that he was invited over for dinner and that he wasn't propositioned to have sex with Keith, but he was propositioned by the couple to have a threesome and that that was what triggered his anger. And when he was asked again, Sells told yet another story. He said that he got off of a freight train and saw the for sale sign on the trailer of the Dardines. And after drinking a few beers and waiting for the right time, he knocked on the door of the trailer and told Keith that he was interested in buying the trailer. He then overpowered Keith and at gunpoint made him gag and bind his wife and son with duct tape and then drove with Keith to a nearby field where he, after he shot him, sliced off his penis and then drove with Keith to a nearby field where he sliced off his penis and told him that he was going to take it back home to Elaine and beat Peter and Elaine. I mean, we know this is kind of not 100% true because that was done post-mortem. After that, he cleaned up the home and drove the car to Benton. So now we have three stories from Sells. So law enforcement is going to question the confession. It seems like he was not speaking like he was the one that committed the crime. Most of the facts that he relayed were given out by the media. So it's stuff that everyone knew. There was no details that they were keeping hidden. Right. That would make you think, oh my God, this guy definitely did it. But this is also something that's very common. While awaiting trial, many criminals confess to crimes, maybe even crimes that they did not commit, in order to get out of jail, to revisit crime scenes, or just to get a sentence reduction and or take the death penalty off the table. And that's something he was up for. This is something that Henry Lee Lucas did in the same state. Because now, remember, Sells was arrested in Texas. He's being held in Texas. Henry Lee Lucas also did the same thing in Texas. And trying to get off the death penalty, he starts confessing to every murder that he possibly can. And that's why, you know, his supposed body count is so high. It might not be he's just lying because he doesn't want the death penalty. Right. It could be. Because law enforcement will make a deal to bring solace to the families. Right, of course. This is where the body is. This is who... Like, it brings closure. Right, they don't want all these open cases. No. But just like Lucas, there's a lot of crimes that he didn't get the details right on. For example, he did not know what seat Keith was sitting in in the car when he got shot. Something that was proven by the blood spatter. And he was incorrect when he answered a question about the posing of the bodies. But when he was asked the same question, he gave a different answer which was the one that was correct. So it could have been like a lucky guess. Family members also didn't believe that Sells killed the Dardine family. They stated that with the way things were in the county in the last two years, the first two stories could not have taken place. Keith would have never invited a stranger into the house to have dinner or to proposition for sex. Now, of course, every family would say that, But in digging into the background and ruling out that either member of the couple was having an affair, they did not find anyone who knew about propositions or were propositioned by either Keith or Elaine. If Keith did go around asking people to have sex with him, 
or himself and his wife in a rural religious town, people would have known about it. Definitely. 100%. Definitely. Also, if he didn't let a young girl, also, if he didn't let a young girl in, why would he let in a 22-year-old man? Right, exactly. It doesn't make any sense. So Joanne wanted to get the full story from Sells. If he was going to continue confessing, she wanted the real story. There was one. However, the two never got to speak. As Sells was executed by lethal injection on January 3rd, 2014. When he asked if he had any final statements, the very talkative serial killer just said no. Seemed like all of his talking didn't get him what he wanted, which was to not get executed. Right. So despite all of the inconsistencies in his multiple stories, Tommy Lynn Sells, even though no longer alive, is still the number one suspect in the murder of the Dardine family. There's no other information. Right. And unfortunately, this is one that might remain unsolved. I mean, the, the only thing I will say is that I think that the first two confessions make no sense. Just like what you brought up. Yeah. He would never let someone in the house or invite them for dinner or any of those things or proposition them for a threesome or to have sex with them. I find that... I mean, it's not out of the realm of possibility. I'm just saying I don't think it's I, – I don't think in that kind of community and how – you know, they were entrenched in the church and how they were very good, you know, good people. I don't think that that would happen. No, not with a three-year-old in a mobile home. And she was pregnant. So I doubt – she was pregnant. I mean, I don't, I don't think that that would be taking place. Yeah. I mean, maybe, but I don't think so. What I do think – I know think, there's there's people that are into some weird things that's out fine, there. But whatever. I don't think – Keith Ardeen in Southern yeah, Illinois no. back in 1987. I don't think so. Who was selling Cokes for 50 cents at the water treatment plant. You know he, what I mean? He was looking after his family. He was trying to get his you know, his future in order. So I don't think any of those things were happening. What I do think, though, is that if if anything, it was probably the for sale sign. Yeah. You know, I like if we're going to – and you know, like we can talk about his – The third story is the most realistic. It's the most realistic. It really is. He would answer the door. With a proposition of, hey, I would like to buy your trailer. Right, and then just force himself in. That is completely 100% believable to me. I also think that because of the traveling, it is very possible that Sells did do it, as well as the fact that his MOs were all over the place. Yes. Also, though, I know people are going to say, well, he didn't get his facts straight. You know what, though? Maybe, (laughs) maybe... He's just a little a fuzzy, a liar, well, and also he, a little fuzzy as well on his on his uh, accounts. If, if he did do it, what I think could account for the different stories was the fact that the first two justified to him the killings. Because of his sexual abuse. Because of his sexual abuse. Right. Whereas if in reality the third thing is truly what happened, there is no excuse for what he did. I mean, even even with him being sexually assaulted as a child, wouldn't even no, give him the never, right to... There's never an excuse, right. but in his mind... No, I understand. that would He would made himself it... not 100% responsible for the murders by saying that's why it took place. Right. I mean, I think he did it. I do. I don't know. I'm, I'm on... I, another thing that was bad was that because he was on death row and he was awaiting the second trial, they weren't able to take him back back to the crime scene the police of illinois the state the illinois state police wanted tommy lynn cells to come back to the crime scene and thinking that maybe that might jog his memory 
and he might be able to give more details, ones that weren't released. But because of his situation, he couldn't leave the state of Texas. Okay. So that complicated things further. You know what? And actually, if you break out of this box of just this family's murder, you have to also consider the fact that there was 15 people killed. Other yeah, than them. There's some craziness so going on. maybe I want to take that back and retract what I said because maybe this just is something, like I always say, where it's just too easy to be him. I mean, a lot. Of, there's a lot of things, though, like with the baseball bats being used, how he does go in fits the, of rages. The coincidence is right. There, there's a lot. But then again, he didn't do 15 murders in, in both counties. No. No, no, I don't think he's responsible for all of that. No, no, I'm, I'm just saying, like, if you just take a step back, even if he did these, this right. family's murder. What a freaking coincidence. What about all the other ones? Yeah. You know, so. No, there's still, there's still people. So what's, so what's the verdict? What do you think? Um, oh, that's a hard one. I think that I'm still too, um, traumatized from doing the research on the case <laughs> to think clearly about who I think did this. I think that logically when you think about things and the most obvious answer has to be the correct one you would think that Tommy Lynn Sells did commit these murders so I think more than likely it was him because he shows that he is disorganized he was rageful he was all over the place and the freight trains and the carnivals and the truck drivers. Right. And the for sale sign was kind of like a, hey, we'll open the door for anyone kind of thing. I think that it probably was him. Even though I think he's, I mean, I guess it's, I guess I just don't like him so much because I listened to so many of his interviews, but I just think he lied about so many things that he's so discredited. But, more than likely, it seems like it was him. Okay. And if I have to have a final verdict, I'm going to say just simply, most likely, based on everything that we've come up with, he probably did do it. But let's not forget that something very strange with all those other murders were taking, taking place. taking place in Jefferson County. Right. So let, yeah. I'm just going to say it's odd, and let's not forget that part of it. Yeah. And that's all. Because right. even one of those 15 murders... Even if it was solved, there there could be something weird about it mm-hmm. that may be connected to this. So let's not rule that out, and let's remember that. Yeah. But it looks to me like it probably was else. But let's not forget that part. Yeah. Of it. This is so interesting, right? This case was so craziness. awesome. Love it. Absolutely love it. All right. Well, we're gonna conclude the episode with that because now we need to like go de-stress after. Oh my god, it's such a traumatic case it's so crazy yeah it is i've been like so upset all week (laughs) (laughs) um but we would love to know what you think and if you think tommy linsells is responsible or you think that it could possibly have been somebody else you can get to us on twitter you can email us at truecrimecouple at gmail.com or you can reach out to us on instagram at truecrimecouple if you're interested in donating to our patreon page you can do that at patreon.com slash true crime couple. All right, guys. Thank you. See you later, guys.